brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20 on page 72? Exodus chapter 20 on page 72. We're picking up our Exodus series again, uh, which we uh, uh, left off earlier this year. So, picking up from Exodus chapter 20 on page 72. And in the center pages of your bulletin, you'll see an outline uh, of uh, the sermon. It'd be good to have that in front of you because then you can see the structure of where we're going. Uh, and that, I think, will be helpful. So, uh, Exodus chapter 20 on page 72 uh, and the outline from the center page of your bulletin. And let me lead us in the prayer as we begin. Uh, God, our Father, we thank you that uh, you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we thank you that you have given us uh, this Word. Um, and we pray that you help us now as we, as we look at it together. Uh, please help me to preach your word rightly and in your spirit's power. Uh, please work in each of our hearts that we might um, uh, love you and love your son, Jesus, uh, and uh, obey you from the heart. Uh, please, Father, uh, work in us uh, by your spirit through your word now we pray. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're one of the most famous parts of the Bible. Uh, and over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at these commandments as well as the rest of the section of Exodus, chapter 20 to 23. This whole block, Exodus to 20, 20 to 23, is called the Book of the Covenant. And it contains two sections. First of all, the Ten Commandments. And then after that, another section which illuminates and applies these commandments in the setting of ancient Israel. And we call that other section the Covenant Code. So you've got the Ten Commandments, and then you've got the Covenant Code. Now, instead of reading Exodus 20 to 23, uh, verse by verse over the next two weeks, we're going to concentrate on these Ten Commandments at the beginning of chapter 12, looking at the first four this week and the, the other six next week. But we'll do it with reference to the Covenant Code. Uh, and see how it applied in Israel's situation uh, before looking to see how it applies in ours. Now, we know that in the book of Exodus at this point, Israel is at Mount Sinai. Uh, 400 years before this, God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would inherit the promised land. But up to recently, they had been slaves in Egypt. Earlier this year, we saw how God rescued them from Egypt in a mighty way. He brought judgment upon the Egyptians and salvation for His people. We saw how He brought them through the Red Sea and then through the desert to Mount Sinai. And then Moses went up to God on Mount Sinai. And God had said to him that Israel would be His treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if they kept His commandments and they kept His covenant. And the people said, yes, they'll agree. And God said that He would speak to them from the cloud. And so preparation was made. And the people had to consecrate themselves. They had to stand at the foot of the mountain, be careful not to go up. And on the third day, the presence of God descended on the mountain in fire and cloud and thick spoke. And God spoke to them. And the words He spoke to them are these, these ten words, these ten commandments. And then if you go down to verse 18, you'll see that the people at the end of this, they were so afraid that they said to Moses, you go and talk to God. Don't let God speak to us anymore. If not, we will die. And so after this, Moses goes up and God speaks to him alone. And God gives him these, this covenant code that I talked about, right? this case law of how to apply these 10 words in Israel's life. 
until the end of chapter 23. And then in chapter 24, you see that this covenant, based on those Ten Commandments and their applications, are formally signed and sealed uh, in God's presence. And so when you look at the context, you see that these ten words are actually part of the Old Covenant. They are part of God's agreement, His treaty with Israel. And so before we dive headlong into them, we've got to actually think about the principle of how do they apply to us? Because they're not directly, immediately to us, are they? They were given to God's people Israel, whom He redeemed from Egypt. And this is the Old Covenant. And we know the Old Covenant has been fulfilled by Christ. We know we're not under the Old Covenant. Uh, this is the law of Moses. We're not under the law. We are under the New Covenant. Uh, and though we're not under the law of Moses, we're not lawless. We're under what Paul metaphorically calls the, the law of Christ. That is, Jesus is our Lord. He rules us by His Spirit through His Word. He teaches us to love God and to love our neighbor. And the Word of God shows us how to do that. And what we have here is part of Scripture, the Word of God. And, and, and all Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so this law of Moses reflects the character of God as applied to God's people under the Old Covenant. It shows Israel how to love God and how to love neighbor in that context. The New Testament, the documents of the New Covenant, which we are part of, show how the same law of love to God and neighbor is applied in the, in the context of the New Covenant after the coming of Christ. And so as we read the Old Covenant, we need to apply it, not directly as if we were Israelites, but in light of its fulfillment in Christ. And the New Testament guides us as to how to do that. We're not under the law directly as our law, but it is still God's word for us to be read, honored, and obeyed in light of Jesus Christ and the changes that he brings. But before God gave Israel the law, he reminded them of his grace. In chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, uh, it introduces all this. And God, God, God spoke all these words. And what did he say? He said, started off by saying this. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God rescued them first before giving, him, giving them his law. Right? He didn't say, here's the law, and if you keep it, then I will rescue you. He saved them from slavery in Egypt to be their God. And since he had rescued them, since he is their God, now he tells them how to live as his people. And that's the same thing for us in the New Covenant, isn't it? God saved us first, and then he teaches us how to live for Jesus. He didn't say, oh, do this, do this, do this, and don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and if you succeed, then you'll be saved. No, 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 no. He saved us by his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He saved us through faith in Christ who died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins and rose again. He saved us, and now we are His. He is our God. We are His people. And having saved us, He shows us how to live, just like He did for Israel. Now, when Israel was saved, the very first thing God told them in verse 3 is that they should have no other gods before him. No other gods. Israel lived in a context where people worshipped many gods. Could Yahweh just be another one? Could they add other gods to him as well? The answer is no. 
If Yahweh is to be your God, if the Lord is to be your God, then He's got to be your God exclusively. That's the deal. He's their only Savior. He's their only God. And you see this fleshed out further in the covenant code. Uh, in chapter 20, verse 23, he says, uh, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, and you shall not make for yourself gods of gold. Uh, in chapter 22 uh, and verse 20, he says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. In chapter 23, verse 19, he says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, which probably refers to pagan practices as part of the worship of their gods. And God warns them in chapter 23, verse 24, not to bow down before the gods of the people of the nation that they're going to uh, inherit. Not to do what they do. Not to serve them. But to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. And all this is because they are meant to worship Yahweh alone. Jesus always fulfilled this law. Remember how Satan tempted him? to take a shortcut to the kingdom, to fulfill his destiny of ruling the world without first going to the cross, how would he do it? Bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus fulfilled this first commandment. And this first commandment applies to us just as much as it applied to the Israelites. For the fact that there's only one true God to be worshipped has never and will never change. What has changed, though, is that we know the identity of this one God to include His Son, the Lord Jesus. Whereas in the Old Testament, God says in Isaiah 45, He says, I am God, there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, before me every tongue shall swear allegiance. Well, the New Testament tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And so worshipping Jesus, God the Son, is part of obeying this command of worshipping only the one true God. But we are not to worship other gods. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, there may be many so-called gods in heaven or earth, but yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he goes on in chapter 10 to warn us against participating in pagan rituals and sacrifices for they are offered to, they're offered to demons. And believers who, who participate risk provoking God to jealousy. And friends, if we belong to Jesus, we are to have no other gods. It's okay. Don't worry, just listen here, that's fine. Okay, uh, if we belong to Jesus, uh, we are to have no other gods, right? Uh, when I was in India, uh, I often saw pictures of Jesus together with pictures of other deities. Uh, people added him to their list of gods. Uh, but you can't do that with Jesus, can you? Either he is Lord or he is not. And if he is Lord, then the very first thing he says is he wants to have our complete loyalty. Do not think that you can mix the Christian faith with any other religion. You can't. If you've been bought with the blood of Christ, then you belong to Christ and to no other. No ancestor worship, no idol worship, no interfaith worship where the worship of God is mixed with the worship of other gods. Worship God 
and him alone. Now, if the first commandment is about only worshiping Yahweh, then the second commandment is about how Israel is to worship him. Because it is possible to say, I only worship Yahweh, but then to worship him in a way that he doesn't approve of. Now, in verse 4, God tells his people, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, there's no exceptions here, anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now, some people have thought that this means we shouldn't have any art. But then later on you read God telling Moses to make cherubim for the tabernacle and a bronze snake. And there's lots of imagery in the temple furnishings, including oxen and cherubim and lions and palm trees. And so the point of this commandment can't be not to, 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 to be forbid art. Uh, the point is to prevent idolatry. And so we see the crux of it in verse 5. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? Do not make for yourself a carved image so that you can bow down to it or serve it. You see, in just a few chapters' time, Israel was going to make a golden calf to depict Yahweh. And they would bow down to it and worship it as part of their worship of Yahweh. Right? They'll say, let's have a feast for Yahweh. And we have this golden calf and we worship this calf. But God would bring His judgment. And as they sinned in families, led by the head of the families, God would punish them in families. He would, in verse 5, uh, visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. And yet His promise to Abraham would continue. For he will continue to show steadfast love in verse 6 to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. God forbids images of him because as Moses points out later in Deuteronomy, God didn't show his image to the people at Sinai. He spoke his word. And people were to relate to him not by viewing and pondering his image, but by hearing and believing and obeying his word. Many years later, an Israelite king would make two more golden calves, cause Israel to sin by, by worshipping Yahweh through these golden calves. And then the people would also start worshipping that bronze serpent, and it would have to be destroyed, even though it was fine to start with. In fact, God told them to make it. It had to be destroyed because of the practice of the people that made it into an idol. And again, this commandment against idolatry is not just for God's old covenant people, in the New Testament, we read that one of the reasons God is bringing His judgment on the world is because people have, and I quote, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so the problem with idolatry is not just that it's an old covenant thing, it's a, it's a creation thing. The glory of God cannot be seen in images and therefore cannot be worshipped through images. Every image falls short of the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only perfect image of God. He is the Word made flesh. All the fullness of the deity lives in Him. He perfectly represents God to us. And every other image falls short of Him. And so it is right to worship God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. Not through a, a statue or picture of Jesus, but through Jesus Himself. And even in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, 
God brings his judgment upon those who worship idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Friends, as believers today, we also need to watch out for idolatry. We must not bow down to or serve any image. Sometimes people say, I don't worship the statue, I just worship God through the statue. And that's exactly what God is saying not to do. On the other hand, I'm not saying, I don't think this commandment is saying all statues and pictures are wrong in and of themselves. I know some people are worried about the statues and pictures in our cathedral, but I think they're okay as long as no one thinks they're representing the living God and no one bows down to them or prays to them or seeks to worship God through them. But if people start kneeling and bowing before them or praying through them or offering gifts before them, that is when they become idols. And we must not let that happen. For God will not tolerate idols. The third word is about misusing God's name. God had revealed His name to Israel as I am. Yahweh, uh, where the word Yahweh is written, our Bible translators use the word L-O-R-D in capital letters. And so we read in verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord Yahweh, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, the word translated vain there means, means empty or worthless or, or, or valueless. Uh, it, it's used for false oaths. Uh, for swearing in God's name something that's not true, well, that's, that's misusing God's name, isn't it? Uh, and inviting His judgment. Or if you make a vow in God's name and then you don't keep it, well, that'll be taking His name in vain. Uh, later on in the law, in the book of Leviticus, there's a man who blasphemes God's name and curses him during a fight. And God says he's to be put to death because God is holy. His name is holy. It is to be used with great reverence. In the covenant code, God speaks about the angel or messenger he will give them. Uh, in chapter 23, verse 20, uh, he says he's got to send this angel to guard them on the way and bring them to the place. And he says in verse 21, pay careful attention to him, obey him, for my name is in him. Later on in the Old Testament, God's name was associated with his representatives. And so when David came against Goliath, he came against him in the name of the Lord. The temple was a house for the name of the Lord. The prophet spoke in the name of the Lord. In fact, the prophet Joel prophesied that the day would come that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. And so to prophesy falsely, to misrepresent God, to, to speak lies in His name, to say things that, that He didn't say, that too would be to take His name in vain. And in the new covenant, we too have been given God's name. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves the apostles preached and healed in the name of Jesus. They baptized in the name of Jesus. God's people assembled in the name of Jesus. And we are taught that in whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do it in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. And Peter, quoting Joel, the prophet Joel, could confidently say, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so we are to honor that name. And honoring God's name goes beyond the keeping of our oaths. Remember our gospel reading, Jesus taught we shouldn't even need to make oaths because our yes should be yes, now no should be no. We should be so honest we don't have to have an oath because we bear the name of Christ. We must seek to live in a way that honors Him, not brings disgrace to His name. And furthermore, we must be careful not to speak in the name of Jesus things He didn't speak. 
You must be careful not to promise for Jesus things he didn't promise. Uh, for example, sometimes people, in their eagerness to, to, to help people who, who have a particular need, well-meaning speakers might say that Jesus has promised to give you whatever, whatever is this thing that you've asked for, if only you really believe. And then if it doesn't come, it appears like Jesus is not faithful, when actually it was the preacher who misused his name. And that brings unintended disgrace on the name of Jesus. Unintended, but grave. Uh, sometimes people take God's name vain, in vain by, by using it lightly. In the West, the name of Jesus is often used as a swear word. Even here, people sometimes say, oh my God, when surprised. Please think of some other expression. I also cringe when I hear people use the word hallelujah in a joke because they don't realize that the yah in hallelujah, that's Yahweh. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh, not to be taken lightly. And blasphemy, cursing or speaking bad of God's name, that is still as serious as ever because God is as holy as ever. In the book of Revelation, it is the name, it is the evil beast who blasphemes God's name and dwelling. And while in the Old Testament, blasphemers would be stoned, in the New Testament, Paul puts Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church, handing them over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Friends, Jesus taught his disciples to pray to the Father, hallowed be thy name. And we need to be careful not to misuse God's name as well. The fourth and last word we are looking at this week is the Sabbath command from verse 8. Chapter 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Uh, Israel was to observe the Sabbath day, Saturday, as a day of holy rest. And in the covenant code, we see this fleshed out further. Uh, in, Deuteronomy, in Exodus 23, verse, verse 10 to 11, uh, we see that they were to, to cultivate the crops for six years and let the land rest for one year. And then in verse 12, uh, we see that they're commanded again. Uh, six days you shall work, on the seventh day you shall rest, that you may be refreshed. The Hebrew slave in chapter 21 verse 2 would work for six years only, and in the seventh year he is to be set free for nothing. So that six plus one, is a, that cycle is an important one, uh, not just in the week, but even beyond that for Israel. But going back to the fourth commandment, we see the reason for the Sabbath rest in verse 11 of chapter 20. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. Right? He rested on day seven at the end of his work of creation to enjoy relationship with the people that he had made on day six. Rest in Genesis is stopping to enjoy relationship. The seventh day in Genesis is also a day that doesn't end. Every other day in Genesis 1 has evening and morning, but not the seventh day. And so in a sense, that seventh day goes on. Uh, back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They were God's people and in God's place, enjoying relationship with God, enjoying His rest in an ongoing way. 
But we lost access to that enjoyment, to that rest in the fall. When the human race rebelled against God, we were expelled from the garden and with it from the rest. But God promised that one day He would restore us. One day He would bring it back. And so when God saved Israel, He wanted them to rest on the seventh day. For the, seventh, the, the, the Sabbath rest in the promised land, that place where they can enjoy relationship with God, that is a picture of God's rest that was back in the garden and also a picture of God's rest that is to come. It's a model. It's a picture of God's people in God's place enjoying that rest once again. But it's not the real thing. When Jesus came, He came as the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the rest, the one who brings the true rest. And He issued the call, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the rest, the real rest that we wait for. That is the rest that will come when we enter our promised land of the new creation and Eden is truly restored and exceeded, where once again we'll be God's people in God's place, enjoying God's blessing and rule uh, forever, where sin and all its consequences, death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more, and the rest we enjoy is that perfect relationship with the triune God forever and ever. And so you see, of all these Ten Commandments, the fact that we are no longer under the law of Moses has the biggest impact on how this commandment applies to us than compared to the others. Because in the New Testament, we're not legally expected to follow the Old Testament Sabbath laws any more than we're expected to follow the Old Testament festivals. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. He is the one who brings in that new rest of the new creation. But the New Testament does say there is a Sabbath math, a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. What is that Sabbath rest? That is that new creation. And what are we told to do in the New Testament? We are told in the book of Hebrews to strive to enter into that rest. That is how we observe the Sabbath, to strive to enter into that eternal Sabbath rest. Not to observe the old one, but to strive to enter the reality to which it points. Now, at the same time, I think it's still good to take a break a day a week. We're following the pattern God set in creation. And it's especially good that we can spend a day meeting with God's people to encourage each other to press on to that rest. So I'd encourage you to make sure you take a day off each week. And since we meet for church on Sunday, we'll keep Sunday special for the Lord to look forward to that rest. But that is advice, not command of the law. Uh, Colossians 2, 16-17 says, Let no one pass judgment upon you in questions of food and drink or with regard to, the festival, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the one who not only kept the Sabbath, but fulfilled it. Well, we've seen so far the first four commands of the Old Testament which showed Israel how to love God. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the next six commands. And we'll also see that Jesus shows us that the kind of obedience that God wants is not just conformity of behavior, but an obedience from the heart. He wants us to love Him from the heart and therefore obey Him from the heart. And actually, obeying from the heart is much, more, much harder than just confirming outwardly. For example, it is relatively easy for us to avoid worshipping gods of other religions or bowing down to statues or images. But there are still idols in the heart that are unseen. There are still things that compete with God 
uh, for, for, for his place as the, the prime object of our devotion. It may be things like money, relationships, career, comfort, security. All these things can, can become idols as well. And, and once we realize that, then we know that actually we are lawbreakers. Lah. Quite apart from the function of, of showing us how to live godly lives, the, the law also, and in fact, first, really, shows us our sin. It's like a, like a mirror that shows actually what we really are like, which is why we can never be saved simply by observing the law. The law shows us our sin. It drives us to Christ to be forgiven. And having saved us, God, uh, Christ puts His law into our hearts by His Spirit. Not by putting us back under the Old Covenant, but by teaching us through the New Testament, through the Old Testament applied in light of the New, how to love God and to love neighbor. It's a spirit thing. Friends, none of us have kept the law perfectly from our hearts except Jesus. He is the one who loved the Father perfectly from the heart and expressed that in perfect obedience. He is the one who died uh, to pay the price for our failure to do so. And so if the Spirit is showing us our sin and the ways that we haven't kept God's law, then what we need to do is to repent and turn to Him and to revel in the grace and forgiveness that He promises through His death on the cross on our behalf and then to live to please Him, worshipping Him alone, doing it in His way, honouring His name, and looking forward with striving expectation to the Sabbath rest of the world to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you spoke to your people as they gathered around you at Sinai. You spoke these words that we have before us today. Thank you that you have spoken to us finally and definitively in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you continue to speak to us by your Spirit through your Word enabling us to know how we might love you and how we might love our neighbor. And our Father, uh, we pray that you help us who have heard your word tonight. Help us indeed uh, to live the way you want us to. Uh, help us to, to love you with our hearts and to honor you and worship you as our only God. Uh, to worship you the way you want to be worshipped, in spirit and in truth, to honor your name, uh, and to strive to enter that rest that you have promised for those who keep on trusting Jesus to the very end. Oh, please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>